What is up, everybody? Welcome. It is very, very good to be here tonight with you. We are so appreciative that you would take your time tonight, be with us, worship with us. Uh, we are Matthias Lot Church, and my name is Jared Corzine. I'm one of the pastors here. I work alongside the four other elders, and, and one of those is our lead pastor, uh, Pastor Mark. Uh, I, I just had to begin sharing something that just happened um, just this afternoon. So, so Pastor Mark calls me. He's a very encouraging guy. So even, even though he's, he's been down in Ecuador for a week with 19 other people, 20 folks that we've sent down on a spring team uh, to, to bless the missionaries and be a part of this partnership that, that we have, uh, Pastor Mark steps aside and he calls me this afternoon about two hours ago just to encourage me and, and pray over me. And so he's getting ready to, to pray and all of a sudden he just stops and he's like, what the... And he says, Jared, you would not believe this. Uh, a bird just pooped on my head. <laughs> right now. And I, so I'm, I'm just sitting here like, I'm just dying laughing. I've been telling everybody I can, I, who knows him because it's just everybody laughs even harder. Uh, knowing that it's him. Uh, but um, uh, nevertheless, uh, first, first, first picture. That was just to get us warmed up. First slide, if you can throw this up. Uh, this is a picture of the... Cotopaxi Training Center in Lasso. Um, some, some friends of ours, Justin and Mary Bean, covenant members of this church, and their, their, uh, their child, Quill, they're, they're going to be back with the spring team. They, they actually took this picture and posted it on their blog. And uh, so I, I pulled it off of it just because this is a picture that was taken just over the weekend. Our team is actually interspersed and mingled in this picture. And uh, this Center, raise your hand if anybody in here has been in this building that, that is in this picture. Anybody here has been down to Ecuador and been in that building? So you will know that the building did not always look like this. And the ministry did not always look like this. We have a two-fold focus that we've gotten behind the missionaries and, and support what they're doing. It's church planning and disciple making. And, and a huge part of that has been the, the team Simon Santana that, uh, where they've been doing ministry to children. You guys heard about that last week, praying for the next generation to be saved, but a huge other facet of that is we've gotten behind Steve and Sandy for the past number of years to develop this property in Lasso in a rural area so that they can train and equip local pastors, Ecuadorians, to uh, be gospel-centered, to plant churches, to uh, continue to, to be grace-oriented. Uh, and so I look at a picture like this, and I, I remember the, the floors being undone. I remember the lights being uh, totally uh, unfixtured. I remember them not having cool wooden slat backdrop things and all the Christmas lights. And I mean, just there's a lot of things that need to happen to get to this uh, point. There's a certain order of things that needs to happen in order for it to get to where it is now, um, next picture actually hits home this point. So this, despite what you may assume, this is not my car. Uh, I've never been a Mustang sports car kind of guy. I know some of you guys are in this room, or Corvettes. Uh, but uh, this, uh, as though we're in the minivan season of life, this picture depicts something that I found myself in uh, very frequently, and that's this. When you, when you find yourself into a project that has many steps and many parts, and you find yourself, you know, even if you fix the thing, you've got to put it all back together. It's got to all go back in a certain order. It's, it's got to have step by step. I had a math teacher uh, in high school, Mr. Spitz, at Orchard Farm High School, who always drove these really old little Volkswagen cars. And he would always tell us stories on Monday about the recent car project that he had going on over the weekend. And he said there was always a spare box that he had in the corner of his garage. And when, when he got done uh, doing the project, replacing a part or taking things apart and putting it back together, 
uh, he would look around and if there were any spare parts laying around, he would just throw it in the extra spare box. Uh, because the thought was, uh, if he would you know, have a problem with the car, if he would start it up or if it would die on him, he would first go back to that box to see if one of the, one of the steps that he skipped, one of those parts would be the parts that belonged back in his car. So you know, things have to be done in order. I'm not saying that's the best way to do things. I'm just saying, hey, if it gets you there, it gets you there. Um, the right order of things matters. Uh, certain things need to happen before other things. In the Christian life, it can be very easy to get things mixed up. And uh, th- this next slide will, will show that. This phrase right here, God loves you because Christ died for you. Some of you might be tempted to amen that, but I would actually say that that statement's false. And before any of you get up and leave and, and want to call Mark when he gets back and say that Jared's been preaching heresy, I want to explain to you why. Um, put the next slide up here. This is the way it actually should go. Because, because God loves you, Christ died for you. You see, that the placement of that word is so important. The first line, which says God loves you because Christ died for you, makes, makes it sound like uh, God only hated everybody until Christ died. Or God was reacting to Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But the second phrase, in the better order, it's, you know, because God loves you, Christ died for you. It shows the fact, according to John 3.16, that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that he, he gave his only son, so that who would ever believe in him would not perish, but, but have everlasting life. You know, see, the difference is God hates you versus God sent his son and made the greatest sacrifice because he loves you. Very, very different in the word order. Next slide. We just got to begin acknowledging this in the Christian life. Getting the order correct is essential. And what order of things, you, you may ask, we're going to get into that tonight. We've been in the book of Joshua for a long time. As a matter of fact, we only have a few more weeks in this wonderful book. It's been an amazing story of God's love, of God's grace, of God's faithfulness. And tonight, we're going to begin in chapter 23. So turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 23. So much has happened. So much has happened in the story of the Israelites and the story of of getting to this point where they've gotten to at the beginning of this chapter and it begins like this. In verse 1, a long time afterwards. See, last week we just got done reading this long story about this reconciliation, uh, which is in the context of of many more conquests and things that have been happening. A long time after these, these conquests were over, Uh, It says, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, verse 2, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am old, I am now old and well advanced in years. And verse 3, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Joshua was, if you recall, the beginning of the journey in Joshua. He was about 90 years old when this whole thing started. And we've probably at least had a few years happen from then till now. A lot of things have happened. Joshua is able to say, hey, I'm old and well advanced in years. I wonder what he looked like if he, if he had to be propped up, if he was sitting down, if he was able to stand and, and, and have creaky knees to be able to say this. But he, he's, he's getting to the end of his life, and he knows that. Um, Many of you have had opportunities to be with somebody as they're transitioning from one phase of life to another. Maybe, 
maybe going from high school to college, maybe uh, transitioning their family in some way, maybe even uh, somebody on their deathbed. You know, what people say at the end, as they reflect back, it matters a whole lot. Joshua, at the end of his life, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised, I'm just so encouraged that he's not giving his resume. Hey, um, guys, uh, I'm old and well advanced in years. Uh, remember all the amazing things I, I've done, please. If you could please build a statue once you get into the land, you know, when, once you inhabit it, once you build stuff up, uh, remember to tell my stories and speak my praises. Uh, Joshua begins to tell them to remember uh, all that God has done. All the battles he's fought, all the wars that he has won. He says, for it, uh, for it is the Lord, your God, who has fought for you. See, in chapter 1, we were promised that the Lord would fight for the Israelites. In chapter 23, Joshua is able to say faithfully, the Lord has fought for you. Um, it, it makes me really wrestle with the perspective on what's, what we've seen happen over the course of this book because we can slowly forget who these people were. These Israelites were not people who were seeking after God and just found him one day. A crash course in just the Israelite story is their forefather, Abram, was a pagan man in a pagan land in Mesopotamia and was sought out by God, was promised that he would be given this land, that a great nation, as many as the sand of the seashore, that that would all come through him and his barren wife, that Abraham's family were going to undo the sin of Adam. This redemption of the world would take place somehow through his family. But the people themselves have never deserved God doing this great thing. The people, uh, for hundreds of years uh, after Abraham, uh, Abraham didn't deserve it. The people in 400 years of slavery didn't, didn't deserve for, for God to redeem them, yet he did. He redeemed them. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into this place. He, he's continued to provide for them, even though they don't deserve it. And uh, my friends, I think, I think what that's called is this. Grace. Now, grace is, grace is a funny word. And for a Christian, grace is one of those words that you may, you may end up using so much that you can forget how powerful it is. See, grace, the definition here says it's unearned favor. Unearned favor. Uh, let, me, let me tell you what grace is like. You know when somebody compliments you and they're really paying you a great compliment and you're so embarrassed and you blush? And you have no idea what to say, and you just kind of awkwardly shrug and thank you very much. You know, I, I, that, that awkward piece of space right there, that's called grace. It's unearned favor. You know you don't deserve it. You feel like you don't deserve it. Uh, but they continue to shower a favor upon you. Uh, the implications of grace, uh, we could say, are this, that God blesses us before we deserve it, and then we respond to his blessing. From Genesis 1 to the very beginning of the Bible, this is the story. God initiates, God blesses, God acts, and man responds. And so grace, um, it looks a little something like this. Next slide. The, uh, uh, yes, this is, my, this is a portion of my refrigerator at home. Um, this chart right here is, uh, we call it the circle chart in our house. We, we have uh, two kids, Reed, who's five, Blaine is three, and in about 10 days, nine days or so, we're going to have a baby girl named Emery. So our family is, you know, is, is growing. Uh, we still have not much of an idea of what we're doing in this, this whole thing, but God continues to bless us with children. We're very, very thankful for that. 
But as can happen, uh, you, know, you need to help your kids learn, you know, discipline and rules and right and wrong and things like that. And every child's different. Uh, I, remember, I remember the night, the, the conversation that we were having, we were just kind of at a loss for how we should take this and, and what he was going to respond to. And uh, we, we prayed about it. And the Lord, like 15 minutes later, uh, gave us uh, and gave my wife specifically this, this wonderful idea. So th- this, this is the circle chart. This is, it, it's kind of complicated, but he gets it. So basically, the, the circles move up into the chart, into a space when you make a good choice. Uh, the circles get out of the chart when you make a bad choice. And if all the circles are underneath the chart and you still make bad choices, then actually the circles come up like alongside the chart. It's, it, it's a whole system, but, but we get it. So, you know, you, you, get, you get the gist. Um, a couple months ago, uh, we had had a bad day. And as kids can have bad days here and there. And so we get to the end of that day. The evening wasn't much better. Uh, I remember sitting down with Reed in his bedroom and... and uh, I said, Reed, what's tomorrow going to look like? What's going to be different about tomorrow? He had no circles in the chart. And, uh, and he said, I'm, I'm going to earn seven circles. I said, okay. Because part of that, I get that. I get that, like promising my way out of bad choices. I'm going to earn seven circles tomorrow. You watch. You wait. I do that to God all the time. I'm going to earn seven circles tomorrow, God. You better wait, you know. He said, I'm going to earn seven circles tomorrow. And I said, and this is totally a Holy Spirit thing because I, I don't naturally think like this. But I, in the moment, I, I just paused and I, I realized what, what I was thinking. And I said, Reed, I'll be very happy. I'll be so happy if you earn seven circles tomorrow. But you know what? If you don't, mommy and daddy will love you exactly the same as we do today. Exactly the same as we loved you yesterday. Because see, what, what we're trying to enforce in him is you know, discipline has a rightful place. You want, you want to grow in your choices. You want to keep learning uh, how to grow and, and, and how to behave right and wrong and all that kind of stuff. But, but that doesn't, um, that's not the determining factor. Our love does not depend upon his behavior. And when we get older, we're so quick to think that we shouldn't believe such childish things like that. My goodness. Um, only grace truly motivates long-term lasting change in a person's life. And I'm very thankful. I'm thankful however somebody comes to believe and have faith in Christ. If you came to faith in Christ through figuring out how wicked you are and you're a sinner in a judgment house scenario or something like that, if that brought you into the kingdom, man, praise God. I just haven't seen anybody get lifelong mileage out of that. At some point in time, you, you, you have to to orient yourself not to your wickedness, but to the goodness of God and to recognize that, man, this, this God is he's so good, it's, it's crazy. He's so graceful, it's crazy. And then you continue to deal with your own sin along the way. It happens because grace, grace gives you motivation to change, not, not holding love out on a, like a carrot on a stick that you can follow endlessly, trying to wonder, am I going to earn it today or not? That's Grace. Joshua continues on in in verse uh, four. He says this. He says, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain along with all the nations that I've already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. Verse five, The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess the land, their land, just as the Lord your God has promised you. 
Uh, cue the map here. This, this, this is important just to reorient ourselves. So, <clears throat> so this map is the color shaded portions are basically showing the land that, that they've been in. These areas that have been allotted to their different tribes and, and, and inevitably it, it seems like there are people still left in this land. There are people groups that they haven't quite yet reached yet. There's going to have to still be some land, some, some time spent and effort driving out people who still remain in this land that God has given them. Joshua says, I've, I've already even allotted you an inheritance. It's your land. There's just somebody else living there right now, and you have to do something about that. And just to, just to square this up again, if, if you think that that's unfair, I want to make sure that you remember, that we all remember, that whether it's Rahab or the Gibeonites, if somebody desires to submit to the God of Israel, uh, then that person, that those people are welcomed. They're, 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 they're not punished for that. But Joshua says there's still work to do. And, and the encouraging thing to me is that God doesn't need Joshua to continue his work. Joshua is a man who is dying and is able to stand up there and say, uh, as for me, I'm old and well advanced in years, probably toward the end, uh, but God is going to continue to do this because he's made a promise to you. Uh, God is so good. He continues in his faithfulness. In verse 6, we continue on. It says, therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. It's amazing how much our faithfulness still comes back to doing what God has clearly said in his word. Amazing stuff. Verse 7, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. So here's, here's the crux. And this, this is basically what happens in the entire story of Israel from here on out. Are they going to be pure and, and, and respond in righteousness to what God has done for them, or are they going to chase after the other gods of the people around them? Um, his challenge for them not to get mixed is, you know, don't get mixed in any way. I mean, he's going to talk about a little bit about marriage at the end of this chapter, but don't be mixed in any way. You see, like, every, in almost every part of the world, religion is a total religion idea. And by that I mean this, is that your religion dictates how you use your money. It dictates how you farm. It dictates your economics. It dictates your relationships. It, 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 it has implications for everything. It seems like it's only in the developed Western part of the world where we live that we think that you can have a little bit of this in your religion, but then you can do anything else you want with any of your other stuff. Joshua is telling these people, don't get mixed in any way. I've, I, I've, already, um, can, I've already warned you that there is to be no intermixing because you shouldn't even make mention. Is this is what's going to happen. If you get involved in a little bit, if you just dabble a little bit, pretty soon you're going to be starting to speak the names of their gods. He says, don't even make mention of those gods. Don't even, don't even do that. And right now I'm sure these people are sitting here thinking, come on, Joshua, like, you know, you know us. You know us. We're not going to do that. But they have to be warned. They have to be encouraged. They have to be held uh, back to, to, to remember that this God that they serve is different. Uh, you should know that, to me, Christianity is... There are many things that make Christianity different from every other religion on the face of the planet, but the biggest, most important thing that makes Christianity different is twofold. One, it's the satisfaction of the thing which brings people close to God, which is Jesus. And number two, it's the fact that this God gives grace. No other God system gives grace. No other God system provides grace as a means to draw near to him. So Joshua is telling these people, hey, they're very different, and you may not see this now, but I'm warning you, stay away from them. And drive them out, because if you don't drive them out, they're going to come back, and they're going to, they're going to get intermixed. They're going to make this whole thing cloudy and tough. In verse 8, we come to my favorite verse of the whole night. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. 
but you shall cling to the Lord your God. The reason why this verse is very important to me is for this one word. Cling. Next slide. This word cling is the Hebrew word davak. Everybody say davak with me. Davak. It means these things. It means to, to cling, of course, to cleave, to keep close to. And davak sounds so much harsher than all of that, but you know, nonetheless, whatever Hebrew. So here's, here's what it means. If I, if I were to ask anybody in here who's uh, read uh, the Bible for, for a substantial portion of time, you may be able to guess where the very first time is that this word is used in all of Scripture. And it's this, Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, davak, to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Because you see, when, when something's in union with with the other, there's, there's no room for things like shame. There's, there's no opportunity for lies or deceit. You can't even lie because you, when you're in union, you see each other. You see each other for who you are. You know each other for, for exactly who you are. There's no need to keep any secrets. So they could be naked and they could be unashamed in that davak, in that union. Now, Joshua is telling these Israelites, your work is to cling to the Lord your God. You've done this to this day. This generation has been very faithful in that largely. He says, cling to the Lord your God. And there are some times when you encounter something in Scripture in the Old Testament that, that can make you think, man, I think this relates to something that we see fulfilled in a greater sense in the New Testament. And when I read this passage for the very first time in getting ready for this sermon about a month ago, the very first thing that came to my mind was this very next thing that I'm going to share with you right now. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's an idea that I didn't know most of my life. It's something I never learned in church uh, growing up. I, I had a great church experience growing up. It just wasn't what was shared. Uh, but I'm going to be totally honest with you. This is one of, this is one of the key doctrines that I've learned uh, from seminary onward that has radically transformed the way I understand the Lord and the way I see myself. And so I want to share it with you. It's called this, Union with Christ. Joshua tells the Israelites, cling to the Lord your God. Union with Christ, it does that, but it does one better. So here, here's the deal. The phrase, in Christ, literal phrase, occurs 89 times in the New Testament. In Christ, if you add also in him, which most of the time is actually talking about Christ himself, if you, if you take in Christ and in, in him together, just in Paul's letters alone, which is about 100 pages, it's mentioned 164 times. And it's one of those phrases that you can read that you can pass over so quickly. And you can, you can think, well, yeah, in Christ, so yeah, you know, when I'm in a relationship with Jesus. In Christ is, it's relationship, but it's much, much deeper. Uh, I have a relationship with my wife that's a union, but I also have a relationship with our dogs that's very different from the relationship that I have with my wife. Even in our household, which we love dogs, that's saying something. That's not a bad thing. Um, but, but, but relationship doesn't, doesn't fully get it. Something radically powerful happens. And here's, here's what it is. Next slide. At the moment of salvation, Jesus dwells in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Simultaneously, by faith, when we, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, in that first moment, 
We are in Christ in an eternal spiritual union. Now, this is, there's some aspects of this that is like super mystery because I don't have any categories in my brain to understand how this works. It's very supernatural. It's very spiritual. But, but what happens is we are in Christ and Christ is in us. It, it, it's, it's as if we're not two separate people anymore. There's an indwelling where uh, the way you treat one is the way you treat the other. It, it, this is, matter of fact, the exact same reason why in Acts chapter 9, when Saul is met by Jesus on, on the road to Damascus, Jesus is able to say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And Saul had never met Jesus before. But what Saul had been doing, he had been persecuting a whole bunch of Christians who were in union with Christ. So here's, here's some implications for how this works out. And, and I want you to stay with me on this because I think, I really think this can change your life. Here's implications. Uh, ex- examples in scripture. Romans 8, I mean, again, there's 160 something times you're gonna see this, but, but just think about these verses in, in a new way. Romans 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, verse one. Verse 39, nor anything will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ephesians 1 is like the goldmine of this. Ephesians 1, verses three through 14, it's like one, run, one long run-on sentence. It's one sentence in the Greek. Sometimes you just have something that you care about so much that breathing is less important, and that's exactly what Paul does in Ephesians 1. In verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Uh, in, in Ephesians 1, 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. In Ephesians 1, 11, in, in him, in union with Christ, we have an inheritance, something that is yet to even come to fruition. In him, in Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Bottom line is from beginning to end, in Christ, something will never be the same. So I've got a couple lists of some implications that may help put some of this in perspective. Again, the, the, the powerful thing is that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. It's not just a relationship of two separate people. Think about a marriage. Think about other things that we talk about cleaving to, becoming one with. Number one, why, why does this union with Christ matter? The, number one, the person of Christ and his benefits cannot be separated. The person of Christ and his benefits cannot be separated. What that means is this. You have the person of Jesus, and then you have all the stuff that comes with, with Jesus, like the stuff that Jesus earned, the stuff that Jesus does. His benefits are things like sanctification, glorification, resurrection, future, future resurrection for Christians, a forgiveness, holiness, purity. It includes also things like obedience because obedience is a blessing in the Christian life. He, he sanctifies us, allows us through the Holy Spirit, enables us in union with him to continue to follow the commands of God. Now, the person of Christ and the benefits of Christ cannot be separated. Here's what happens. If you separate the person of Christ away from his benefits, which include obedience, then you're basically uh, what we would say is loose liberty. You're, you're anti-law. You're all about Jesus as a relationship, but, but not about the, the obedience stuff. And on the other side, if you, if you forsake the, the relationship with the person of Christ, but then you grab hold of his benefits, which include obedience, then you're a legalist. And Jesus, uh, I mean, they're both bad, by the way. I should explain that. Neither one of those is a good thing. Jesus was never accused one time of being a legalist in the, in the New Testament. He was accused a whole bunch of times of being loose liberty. Why do your disciples not do this? Why do your disciples not do that? How, how come you're healing on the Sabbath? How come you're breaking the law? The person of Christ and his benefits cannot be separated. And here's where the rubber meets the road on that. Number two, if you are one with Christ, then you deserve all of his 
benefits. It ups the ante a little bit. It stretches you out. It becomes a little scandalous because if Jesus deserves something and you are in Christ, in union with Christ, then you deserve what Jesus deserves because you're one with him. Number three, everything you receive in the Christian life is yours right now. And when you really think about what matters in the Christian life, it doesn't include things like Chevy Tahoes and bigger houses and all that stuff. Everything in Christ that Christ has earned, everything that comes with the benefit of knowing Christ, your sanctification, past, present, and future is yours in Christ right now. Your future glorification is yours in Christ right now. Your, everything you will ever have at the far end of the journey, which, by the way, there's no end of the Christian journey if you know Jesus. Everything in Christ is yours right now. You just may not realize it. You may not experience it right now. Because there, there are certain ways in which our sin can still cloud our perspective, uh, in which we're not ready for certain things. We're still growing. We're still being matured. But, but it doesn't mean it's not ours right now. I, I, you could say it this way. In Christ, we are not continually growing into better and better people. It's not like you become less of an individual or you grow and grow into a better person. You are becoming who God already sees you to be. Number four. Why does union with Christ matter? In Christ, there is nothing left to earn. Nothing left to earn. Because again, you're in union with Jesus. Would Jesus have anything else left to earn right now in this moment? No. And if you're in union with him, then that means that you receive by grace, through faith, you deserve what he deserves now because you're one with him. Okay, so, so setting that aside, and you would be amazed, by the way, at how often I get the question of why does this matter? Okay, so that hopefully gives you some insight into why I think this matters. But the next, the next list is so very important, practically. How does union with Christ make a difference in your life? How does it tangibly affect the way you live? Number one, it changes how you see yourself. Because you are not just some fill-in-the-blank. You're not just some addict. You're not just a, a greedy person. You're not just a, a selfish person. You're not just a mean person. You're not just a, a, a failure. You're not any of those things because you're in one, you're, union, you're in union with Jesus Christ. If you, if you can't call Jesus that name, then you can't call yourself that name. In Christ. Again, no... The, the two shall become one flesh in Christ is, is much, has much bigger implications than, than what we like to give it credit. Number two, how does union with Christ make a difference in your life? It gives you confidence in prayer. Jesus says anything, if you ask it in my name, it will be given to you. And of course, it doesn't mean that if we just say the right formula, we're just gonna get whatever we want. It, it means that when we pray to God in union with Christ, it's, it's as if Jesus himself was praying to God. And even the prayers that we pray that, that may still not be technically like according to his will or, or whatever that is, like any of those prayers that we pray are, are taken by Christ in union with him, sanctified, filtered by the Spirit, brought, brought to the Father in a, such a pleasing, amazing way. Every time you pray to the Lord, it's like Jesus himself is giving that prayer to God in union with with Christ, so that should change what we ask for. We've been praying for salvation in Santana. 
We've been praying, the covenant members every single day have been praying for our team, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Ecuador. They're going to come back in a couple days, and the challenge is to ask them, how did God answer these specific prayers? Because a whole bunch of people, over 400 covenant members in union with Christ, have been praying for these things to happen. How did God answer those prayers? Number three, how does union with Christ make a difference in your life? It gives you a choice in temptation. It gives you a choice. See, before you were a Christ follower, before you were a Christian, if you were a Christian, then you were a slave to sin. When sin said jump, you had to say how high. When sin rattled its chains, you had to go along. But in union with Christ, you are in union with the one who has overcome and defeated temptation, resurrected from the grave, and overpowered everything that can get thrown at you. You don't face temptation just as a, a man or a woman. You, you face temptation as one who is united with the one who overcame the temptations of, of the devil in the wilderness. He is with you. I can say it this way. In Christ, you're, you're no longer a slave. You're a son. In Christ, you have a choice. Now, I totally get, I, I, I very much get that for some people, it's very hard to make that choice, but it, it doesn't mean you're not a son. We have, we have a brother in our law family who just got back from three months of, of rehab for sexual addiction. In Christ, Jesus was with him every step of the way. He could enter that rehab and battle that sin because he's one with Christ. Jesus wasn't waiting for him to get out of rehab to get better in order to be one with him. Jesus was with him in the trenches. In Christ, you're not a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. So, Joshua, though, continues on. He says, cling to the Lord. Our hope, the grace of union with Christ, means that we can cling to God because he first clung to us. And he chose us in him before the very foundations of the world. He initiated this great union, and we just get to respond. Verse 9 it says, for the Lord has driven out, Joshua is still talking to them. He's driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you all this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand. Since it's the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. I want to remind you, the Israelites weren't trained warriors when they went into the wilderness. They didn't go to like military school and then God said, okay, like you've graduated, let's go do this. There are a bunch of slaves and farmers and nomads who God put together and said, you know what, we're going to conquer a land. And you can't do it, but you know what, I'm going to do it through you. The Lord has fought for them. Brings up this question. Um, how has God fought for me? We all have different stories of this in some ways. You think back on your life, it's easy to overlook it. I mean, if, if you're like me, it's like, it's like going through Christmas time and you, you receive an awesome gift and then a week later, it's like the gift never even existed. We have to do so much diligent work to go back and remember what has the Lord done to fight for me. Battles he's, he's enabled you to go through. Ways that he's remained faithful to you when others weren't. Ways that he's enabled you to overcome sin and temptation, addiction. Ways he's done the miraculous things in your life. And some of you, I'm still, um, I still have a soft heart for it because I know that some of you have been exposed 
to deep, terrible evil against you. And you've, like the psalmist, at times asked, God, where are you? You say you're fighting for me, but it doesn't feel like you're fighting for me. I'm not going to pretend to act like I know your journey. I'm not going to pretend to act like I know what what your specific story is. All I know is this. What God did to send his son to die on a cross in our place and three days later to resurrect from the grave, 1 Corinthians 15 says, to defeat every last enemy. Somehow what Jesus did 2,000 years ago was the decisive blow to anything that's been done to you. And that victory that Jesus had 2,000 years ago that he reigns because of right now in, that victory will one day be the thing that stomps out every last sin that's been done against you. Joshua is trying to remind these people, the Lord, do you remember that God has fought for you? One of you guys can, can knock away a 1,000. You know that wasn't you. It's so easy how much we, we're, we're so quick to take the credit for that. And then we look so foolish in God's eyes, I'm sure, sometimes. Just, he just got a laugh, like a loving laugh, like, oh, that's so funny. You think that that was you who knocked a thousand people away that one time? I'll let you believe that, but, you know, it was me. It was me. You get to those moments sometime, and you're just humbled, and you recognize, yeah, okay, that was God. That was not me. I, I played that role for a little while, but that was not me. Verse 12. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you the ones who are still left, and make marriages with them, be in union with them, so that you associate with them and they with you. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes. They're, they're going back to slavery. Until you perish off of this good ground that the Lord your God has given to you. See, they, they can forfeit the blessing. Everything that God has said he would give them, they've received. And, and then that they have a challenge now. How are they going to live in the blessing that God has, has given them? Are, are they going to go back to slavery? They, they, their forefathers came from Egypt. They can't go back to slavery. The only way to go forward is to go forward with the Lord. But the world will throw out shiny things, enticing things. The nations around them are going to have things that appeal to them at different times. Sometimes the crops in the other nations are going to grow faster than the crops in Israel. And they're going to be tempted, well, maybe I should just pray to the Baal gods too because then maybe my crops will, will grow fast enough too. Sometimes they're going to be tempted by the other ways that they do life or, or, or the ways that they see other nations being successful. They're going to be very tempted to chase after the things in the world around them. And, and, I, and I know that we do too. It brings up this question. Um, I want you to think about this. What has clinging to the world ever done for you? I mean, really think about that. It may have gotten you something for a little while. You may have looked really good in the eyes of some people for a short time, but eventually that turns back on you. You know, idolatry, anything, anything that you give yourself over to except for the Lord, any other idol will eventually destroy you. That's what idols do. They destroy the thing that worships them at some point. And it may look really good until the very end. Joshua is saying these nations are, if you leave them, if you don't press on, if you don't continue to fight with the Lord, if you don't continue to battle, these nations are going to creep up and they're going to be pretty enticing. You're going to want to marry their women. Uh, you're going to want to do things the way they do. And 
says, don't do it. Just trust me, trust me. But what has clinging to the world ever gotten you? Every one of us knows what it is like to be led out into the far country. To be led out enticed by things that the world will throw at us. Every one of us knows what it's like to get something from the world, to like it at first, and then to realize that it wasn't uh, what it said it was, or it didn't do what it promised. It turned back and began to eat at you and destroy you. Every one of us knows what it's like to, to face that temptation. Every one of us are actually living in that temptation right now. We go back out there, there's, there's billboards, there's commercials, there's, there's, there's insurance plans and 401ks, and I'm not saying any of those things have to be sinful, but this, this insulated life that somehow protects you from ever needing anything, let alone God, you're being sold that life every single day. Joshua said, don't go out there, don't play with that, don't even make mention of those gods, continue being faithful with the Lord because clinging to him is the only hope that you have. And for us, as a Christian on this side of redemption, I can, I can say that um, clinging to the one who has already clung to me is the only hope that I have. But you know what it's like to go out. You know what it's like to want something. You, you belong in your father's house, but you decide that whatever's out there is uh, pretty appealing. And maybe you recognize that you don't belong there at first, but then time goes on and on and on, and you think to yourself, man, I'm just going to go out there a little bit. I'm just going to get out there. I'm just going to get into the world. I'm just going to try. I'm just going to test this out for a little while. It'll be okay. People out there look fine. What's the deal? There's a story in Scripture, in my opinion, outside of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, this is the best story in Scripture, second only to Jesus himself. And, and it's, a story about, it's a story about a dad, a father, and two sons. And one of the sons uh, stays, remains with his father the whole time, does everything he says. Then you find out in the end that son's only been doing it because he's been trying to, to earn his fair share. He's, he's never really given into the fact that this God is so... Good, this, this father he has is so gracious. But the younger son comes to the father and he says basically, Father, I'm, uh, I know that when you die, I'm going to get a big inheritance. I really don't care if you live. I just want your inheritance. Give it to me. Let me go out and live my own life. And uh, the father uh, gives him what he wants. And I hope you remember, I hope you understand that sometimes it's the worst thing for us for God to give us exactly what we want. But this son took his inheritance and went out into the far country and lived a lavish life. He spent all his money on prostitutes. The older brother testifies against him later on. He has been united and clung to all these other things in the world out there. And then he, he gets to the end of his rope. He, he lives a really awesome life until it all goes bankrupt. And then he finds himself as a servant or as a slave feeding pigs and he's eating the food that the pigs are eating, and he thinks to himself, man, why am I living as, as a hired servant out here? Why don't I go back? My father will at least surely, surely welcome me back as a servant. I, I know that I forfeited my sonship, but at least he'll welcome me back as a worker. Luke 15 is where this picks up. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. 
and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He, he doesn't even get to his full sentence because the father says this. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put the ring on his finger. And put the shoes on his feet. Put, uh, bring the fattened calf and kill it. The robe, let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, and he's found. And they began to celebrate. You see, I, I think grace is so scandalous in two ways. Grace is so scandalous when you have that robe put on you, and you everything in you feels like you don't deserve it. It feels so uncomfortable. God, do you know what I've done? God, do you know how I spent all that time out there in the world? You must have this, you've got the wrong guy. As the father continues to put on the ring and the shoes, and as he continues to throw the party. That, that's one way that grace is extremely scandalous, when you know that you don't deserve it in and of yourself. The second way is when you become so offended because other people receive the same grace that you receive that you deserve, so you think. The reason why grace is so powerful to me tonight is because I am afraid that many Christians simply just cannot trust that God is as gracious as he is to you. You look at him, you read about him, you pray to him, and you still pray like you're a hired servant, not a son. Your, your sin has, has risen up in front of your eyes so much that you've forgotten who you really are. And who you are is based on who he says you are. At the end of the day, we're left with this. Next slide. We can cling to God because in Christ he first clung to us. That's it. The object of our hope is not even our own faithfulness. Our faith can waver from day to day, but our, the object of our hope is the finished work of Jesus Christ who, in union with us, brings us to the Father, makes us totally acceptable, completely blameless in his sight. In Christ, we belong with the Father. And, and then this. If you are in Christ, then the time of earning is over. There's no more need for the rest of your life to earn one more thing with God. It's, it's like you're believing that there could be one more thing that, that Christ has still yet to earn. If Christ has earned everything and he is in union with you, he's clung to you, then there is no reason to try to earn one more day. The time to celebrate is now. And to not celebrate as a bunch of hired workers who are afraid for, for God to turn the other cheek, but to, to, to let the other shoe fall, but worshiping God because we've been fully accepted, fully acquitted, fully forgiven, fully welcomed in. No matter how awkward it felt to receive that robe, to receive that ring, to receive those shoes, Christian, you have been welcomed back with the Father. And for those in the room who, who don't believe, I just want to encourage you that the world has you enslaved. I want to offer you a way out of that. And the only way out of that is Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Apart from Christ, we have nothing. We have nothing to boast in. 
But in Christ, my friends, we have everything. God, I pray that you would hear our praises, enable us to praise you as people who aren't compelled for any other reason except the fact that, God, because Christ died for us, he is in union with us, we belong in this place. God, we belong worshiping you. We belong with you. God, thank you for accepting us. Thank you for initiating, for being so graceful, even when it messes us up, even when we don't believe you're as graceful as you are. God, help us to worship you not as slaves, but as sons and daughters in this place.